1: Join me while we tackle today's modern mom problems. Welcome back to another episode of Modern Mom Problems. I'm your host Tara Clark, and today we're going to be exploring a topic very dear to my heart: American motherhood. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Gross. She is an opinion writer at the New York Times, where she writes a newsletter on parenting. I almost want to say, like the newsletter on parenting. Oh um, <laughs> man. I don't know about that. (laughs) It is. It is like the quintessential newsletter. Jessica's new book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, will be out later this month. Jessica was the founding editor of Lenny, the email newsletter and website. She also writes about women's health, culture and grizzly bears she was one of linkedin's next wave top professionals 35 and under in 2016 and glamour game changer in 2020 for her coverage of the pandemic jessica
2: gross welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i'm very excited to be here
1: I am absolutely thrilled. As I mentioned before we got on, I don't normally fangirl or get nervous about interviews. I was so anxious and so excited to meet you because I had just finished your book. So I feel like I know you personally and we sort of run in the same circles, similar circles. We have a lot of common experiences, which we're going to jump
2: into in just about a second. So... Jess. can I call you Jess? Is, is it okay? Absolutely. Okay. And also, you should not feel nervous. No one should feel nervous to talk to me if they knew how much time I spend watching Below Deck and how garbage my brain is. So just like never, you shouldn't. But I am flattered, <laughs> and I am so happy that you read my book and that it meant something to you.
1: It really, really resonated. So as I mentioned, you are a brilliant writer. You're very well known, also for your coverage of the pandemic, which we're going to talk about in a second. You truly have your finger on the pulse of American motherhood.
2: How did you get to where you are today? Well, I'm trying to think the long story or the short story. I mean, I basically oh, okay. I I've been working in journalism since I got out of college immediately. So the day one I started working in culture journalism and I sort of ended up writing about family policy and American family the American family when I was at Slate. And that was before I even had children. But it was always an area that I was interested in, and an area that it was so clear, again, even before I had kids, that American motherhood was harder than it needed to be and harder than it is in other countries that are as wealthy as the United States. And then when I actually became a mother, I experienced that difficulty firsthand as i Talk about in the book. I had hyperemesis, which is when you just throw up all day, every day when you're pregnant. And I got incredibly depressed and I had to quit a new job that I was a real step up for me. And I was pretty sure that I had just absolutely torpedoed my career. That was around the time that Lean In came out. And I like to joke that I leaned directly into a toilet. (laughs) (laughs) That was how that worked out for me. But then, you know, After that sort of, you know, kind of really seismic shift in my life, I sort of doubled down on writing about families and motherhood and specifically American motherhood. And I was freelance for a while when my older daughter was, until she was three, I was freelance. And then I worked at Lenny where I helped launch that newsletter, which was a really, you know, overall incredible experience and worked with a lot of amazing women. And I sort of stepped back at that time from writing. That's when I had my second kid. I was sort of feeling like I was more interested at that point in helping other people develop their stories and working as an editor and bringing other people's ideas to fruition, which has been such a blessing in my career that I've been able to do that. And then starting in... 2018, I moved to the Times. The newsletter came started in the spring of 2019 and it moved to it was originally in the newsroom, which means that I wasn't really allowed to be as opinionated as I very deeply am. And then uh, in, in 2021, it moved over to being part of the opinion desk, which I was really excited about not because I don't like to do reporting. I love doing reporting and my newsletter still includes tons of reporting, but I just feel like there's so many issues that are so urgent for American parents in our, you know, COVID world that I couldn't, I didn't want to hide my biases. I mean, we're all biased. Every human being has their biases and, and being part of a newspaper, I think it's, you know, I, I respect and value all the work that I did in the newsroom, but I'm, was very excited to be able to really say what I thought about these issues that felt so dear and urgent to me. So that's the sort of long-winded version of how I got to where I am. Well
1: I'm so glad that you did because I, I genuinely believe that you are the voice of a generation. And so thank you I don't for know being... about that. <laughs> <laughs> am I blowing
2: smoke? I, I shouldn't be
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> no, more just
2: like, you know, I like to think and say every American motherhood is 150 million stories, or however many mothers there are in America. And so, and they're all so different. I mean, that was, you know, one of the great lessons of my book is that, yes, there are all commonalities, and there are so many ways in which I think we all feel overwhelmed by the demands and expectations placed on us. But I do not claim to speak for anyone but myself. And that is why I always love doing the reporting and having so many different voices because. My experience is just one of so many, and as I'm sure yours is too. So I don't feel like you're blowing smoke. I just can't. I don't accept that.
1: (laughs) I do not accept that, Tara. No, I I think that makes sense because I always say that about Modern mom props as a platform as well is that it's not just about my experience. I'm only one of, like you said, 150 million mothers. You know, I think that modern motherhood is about community and it's about all of us telling our stories together because although we may experience motherhood differently, there are commonalities and we could still respect each other's journeys and then learn from each other's journeys. And that's why we're here.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that sort of in the conclusion, the one biggest takeaway for me, and then I think that we can all do for each other every day, is just be accepting and, be, and listen and not try to sugarcoat someone else's experience. Because I think so much of the sort of misunderstanding and bad feeling happens when we feel like we are falling short, whether that's a sort of self-imposed feeling of falling short or is some pressure from somebody in our lives.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a huge history buff. And you start the book out with a little bit of a history lesson, right? It's a chapter called, How Did We Get Here? So I'm going to ask you that question. How did we get here?
2: Um, there's it, it is such a mashup of sort of cultural and legal and terrible Victorian eugenicist ideas. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, like a lot of American history, the sort of fundamental project of it, at the beginning was separating white christian people from everybody else and creating a system of laws and culture that you know either implicitly or explicitly made anyone who did not fit that definition left them out of you know in this case true motherhood and especially you know enslaved women had their Children ripped from them. They were not considered real mothers. Their children were property of slave owners. So that sort of was the fundamental. I wouldn't say fun. I mean, fundamentals might not be the right word, but the sort of ground which our modern conception of motherhood began on. And you know, I think since then, obviously, our ideas about motherhood and the legal standing of women and mothers has come forward a lot, but what I tried to show in the history chapter was that every time there was sort of a movement forward, there was always a sort of countervailing force that was trying to push back. And I said this in the book and I've said this in columns, but it's just really remarkable to think about the fact that women were only allowed to have their own credit in the 70s. If you were a married woman, you, everything was in your husband's name by default. You would, had no access to capital of your own. And single women obviously had, could only have their fathers um, sign for, and you know, they just was sort of that kind of fundamental agency, that financial agency that I think we take, I certainly take for granted on a day-to-day basis. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's we, our mothers or my mother, you know, my mother graduated from college in 1970 and could not have, Bought a house by herself if she had the financial wherewithal. So, you know, I think about that a lot that even though there's so many things that are still extremely messed up about modern American motherhood, we have come quite a long way in a short period of time.
1: Yes. I, I love that you did mention that at the end of the book as well that you spoke with someone and they said, like, you know, we really have come so far from where our mothers and where our, our mothers mothers were so that we we do need to, you know, take that into consideration sometimes. I know we're always like pushing and like, you know, wanting it to be more, 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 but it's like, but you know, we do have certain wins, right? We could. Yeah. Like, and
2: I mean, I say that not to be like, and we should just give up and like, that's it. This is as far as we're going to come. But I think it's honestly thinking about that keeps me going because I can, you know, the part of the book that you're referencing, I'm talking to this amazing historian, Alice Kessler-Harris, I think she's a historian emeritus at Columbia, has amazing books about women and work. She, I think she's in her 80s. And I was talking to her on a day where I felt really demoralized and probably some you know, efforts to pass paid leave had just failed. Or something had happened in the news where I was like, nothing is ever going to change. And she just looked at me like, you're – You're short sighted. Like, she told me a story about how when she began her career, she was a teacher, I believe, in the Baltimore school system. And she had to sign a contract that said that if she got pregnant, she would quit her job as soon as she started showing. So, again, there's a lot that's still messed up and unequal and wrong, but you know, it's better than it was in that scenario. So, you know, I appreciated that sort of contextualization. And I think it's just always important to kind of go back and look at the stories and think about how we got to where we are. But, you know, I often think about some of the more unrealistic expectations. And, you know, I I already mentioned that I had a very difficult pregnancy with my older daughter. And I found the stuff around pregnancy and the history of pregnancy in the United States really fascinating to explore because, just the idea that you're supposed to feel great while you're pregnant. I mean, is just not very obviously untrue for so like, I would say 90% of the people I talk to just like, you don't feel your best self a lot of days. And just again, in the sort of recent history in the mid 20th century, there were a lot of psychiatrists pushing the notion that if you were not overjoyed and feeling amazing. While you were pregnant, you were neurotic and you were you hated your own femininity. Like that was an idea that was mainstream popular culture in the 50s and 60s. And that's bonkers. <laughs> it's bonkers. It's totally bananas. Even the yeah. one that you were mentioning about, this
1: obviously predates that, is that women couldn't think about certain Negative thoughts
2: because
1: they're babies. Do you want to explore that a little bit? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, that's really funny. So, they I mean, it was
1: downright silly.
2: Yeah. So, there is this idea of maternal impressions. And so, I mean, we did not really know how reproduction worked until the 19th century. Nobody knew how exactly how it worked. And scientists had not laid eyes on sperm and egg. They, you know, there was our modern conception, what we know about reproduction was just not known. And so they thought this idea of maternal impressions, that if you looked at something while you were pregnant, you could potentially affect your fetus. So if you looked at a frog, your baby could look like a frog. Or if you looked at a man who was not your husband, your baby could end up looking like that man. And my f- my favorite story about that is an English woman in the 18th century who convinced a bunch of people that she had given birth to a litter of bunnies. <laughs> so good for her for that grift. I like the one with the muscle. I think it was
1: like if you look at a muscle and then your baby may have a muscle head, like a muscle a, like, like, oyster, a head. like an
2: oyster head. Yes. <laughs> that yes. was one of my favorites. Yeah. So there were a lot of really interesting and incorrect ideas about pregnancy and, and how that worked for people. And we're sort of still affected the way i often think about it is usually when things don't make sense and there's contradictory demands on mothers it is the residue of a very old idea that is based in nothing <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm going to keep that in mind i mean yeah.
1: <laughs> i mean the other thing too is like for me now personally my son is almost 10 so i've moved past a lot of that unsolicited advice or or those like nagging voices in the back of your mind but i think that's really important especially for the listeners now
2: yeah i mean i'm in the same boat i have my older daughter is almost 10 my little one is 6 so i'm which after- let me
1: tell you when when i was reading that not that i'm disclosing your your personal information but it's in the book it's in the you book. had it's in the book so it's okay it's public knowledge now you had your daughter december of 2012 i had my son at Mount Sinai at the
2: end of November, 2012. Stop. We could have passed each other in the Uh, hall. I know. I I think about that a lot because that was the fall of Hurricane Sandy. Yes. I was supposed to deliver at NYU and they were like, oh, you can't deliver at NYU because the maternity ward is washed out. (laughs) I remember it being washed out. I was always
1: supposed to deliver at Sinai because my husband works there and we actually lived like right next door. So that was always my plan. But I do have friends and I do remember hearing people not being able to deliver. Yeah. So you
2: were very pregnant when Hurricane Sandy hit, which was not the most fun week of my life. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, was, that was not a nice one. We lived yeah. on the top floor of
1: our building, which was probably, I can't even remember. My husband would probably know, me. I don't know, maybe 20 floors up or something like that. Okay. And it was just like, rrr, rrr, the wind was blowing, like the girders were like screaming in in the wind during that, but we didn't lose power. We, we, we were okay. We were safe. And then I had yeah. him a few weeks later.
2: No, I just remember being really afraid that I was going to go into early labor. Like I was like, this would be the worst time to go into labor. And I have no control over this. And like knock wood, that did not happen. I did not go into early labor, but yeah, no, I, I do I, have a friend that actually, that did have a baby during hurricane Sandy, but she was living in New Jersey at the time, but still some of my daughter's friends, the twins were born, basically, like the day of the hurricane.
1: Bananas. <laughs> Their poor bananas. mother. I was thinking of you in the story. So you mentioned that. And you mentioned about a lactation specialist. And I thought to myself... And the like the the room, and then the way that you described, it, I was like, I bet we were sitting in the same room. You sure probably we probably at one room. point were in that same, not at the same time, obviously because it was a few weeks apart. But at the same, you described it so well that I was like, oh my gosh, she described the
2: room that I had my lactation oh. class in. I remember it very so vividly. I mean, oh. it's many of the things. I mean, that I, I have to say, like writing about those sort of early pregnancy, that first pregnancy, and the you know first postpartum. It was very rewarding, but it was very difficult. It was very painful to put myself back in that time. The postpartum stuff was actually fine. I had a actually, my daughter was the world's easiest baby. She was so, she just did all the baby things. She ate and slept and pooped. And it was, you know, just, I feel like that was my karmic reward for going through such a difficult pregnancy. And, just reliving it still was, was really hard even to get it on the page, which was surprising to me, you know, because I, I felt like in my day-to-day life, I've totally processed it and I don't think about it a lot, but writing it definitely put me back in that difficult moment. And it's a lot. I recently started using
1: the Slate Electric Flosser. And let me tell you that it makes my mouth feel as clean as it does when I leave the dentist's office. I used to be one of those people who flossed either right before my dentist appointment or when there was just something stuck in my teeth. But now I use the Slate Electric Flosser every day. This cutting edge flosser reduces plaque, fights bad breath, and supports your gum health. It's so easy to use that my son can do it by himself. If flossing is a chore for you and your family, you should check out the Slate Flosser at www.slateflosser.com. Remember, my listeners receive 15% off with the discount code MOMPROBS15. So head over to slateflosser.com and take charge of your oral health. You did it so beautifully because it put me back in, in back to my own postpartum. <laughs> and, and I mean, for me to be thinking about the room that we sat in to learn about how to breastfeed, it really brought me back. So speaking of bringing us back, let, let's come back to the modern age. We We had yeah. a bit of a history lesson. I want to talk about social media. It's what I do. I've been doing this now for six years, built a fantastic community. I talk a lot about, obviously, modern mom problems. And so I want to pick your brain about this. In the book, you mention that anxiety, jealousy, shame, and guilt are the four horsemen of the mompocalypse. What do you mean by that?
2: So that, I believe, is from Elise DeMarco, who's a great psychologist who I interview frequently. Actually, she is in the column that's going to run this week. I talked to her for it. And they are just kind of chronically chasing all of us and comparing yourself to other people is human. We do that. That's what all humans do constantly, all day, every day. But before social media, we could, we would just compare ourselves to the people in our immediate orbit. And we would have enough context to know, like, oh, well, you know, that person is posting themselves looking perfect on social media, but I saw her yelling at her kid at the playground. And like, you know, you know, you see the facade and you see the reality. And so you don't have to compare yourself to something that is unrealistic and unreasonable, but social media makes it so that we don't have that context of imperfection. And even though, you know, it is the year 2022 and we all are aware that social media is not real. Being bombarded with those images, with that text does something to us and makes us feel, you know, can make us feel incredibly inadequate. And I don't think this is in the book. I think I wrote about this in my newsletter, but during the pandemic, when I was like really struggling, my parents got, both got COVID in that very first wave March, 2020, before it even shut down. And my dad was extremely sick. I was trying to, my husband and I both work. We obviously had no help our kids were in 2nd grade and preschool at the time and we were trying to homeschool them we did a terrible job it was all of that was happening and then i saw a mom on social media baking crackers from scratch and i lost my mind i was just like no <laughs> Just no. No, just no. And I was like, first of all, what's it to do with me? It has nothing to do with me. Like, this is not real. It's like a moment in their life. You have no idea what's going on. But there is just something about, especially I think if you are going through a difficult moment, it's very hard to take. It's very hard to take. And so, again, we all – I use – I can't get off social media. I would like to often. You and me both. Yeah. Um, So I'm not suggesting, like, I think the sort of cold turkey Well, like, why do you have to be on it? And I think is reductive and silly, especially because I think, you know, and you're an example of this. It's like people also find community and support and real understanding. And so it's like, well, you don't necessarily have to throw out the good with the bad, but Elise, who's this great, psychologist, you know, really recommends ways to sort of draw appropriate boundaries and figure out, you know, are you – she has this sort of great way to set boundaries, which it's like, do you even like this person that you're following? Like – are they, what are they giving you? And if you don't even like, why are you hate following this person that they don't share your values? And that's sort of bringing it back to your own values and trying to figure out what those are is sort of another theme of the book. But in social media, that's sort of how it plays out. It's like, I thought I've done that too, where I followed someone where I'm just like, I like their aesthetic. And then I find myself feeling jealous or negative anytime I see them. And I'm like, this isn't good for either of us. Like, No. Unfollow that. Unfollow that. You don't need that. <laughs>
1: no, it's true. I love the term "hate follow" because I've definitely used that term myself, and so <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: like it's it's irresistible. I mean, again, we are as humans designed to be social animals and compare ourselves to each other and learn from each other, and so there's no shame in it at all. Like it is a very natural urge. It's just knowing when to know that it's becoming toxic for you is. Always the challenge,
1: yeah. So I love social commentary. I'm a huge fan of it. I've I was a communication major, did lots of media analysis all throughout college and then in graduate school, and so a big part of the chapter on social media is obviously social commentary. And so I want to chat about this. And in it, you quote Catherine Morton, who is. I am a huge fan of hers. She is getting her doctorate in, I mean, and I'm I'm paraphrasing this, in mommy influencers and the the entire concept of that. Can you talk about how either how you came to meet Catherine and, or how her work influenced your chapter?
2: So I adore Catherine. I think she is brilliant. I've never met her in person, but we've been sort of talking and I've edited her for years. I just have always found her commentary and insight on moms performing on social media to be brilliant and spot on. And she really provided the sort of intellectual backbone of that chapter in a lot of ways. I interviewed her for the book, but her sort of following the chronology from the earliest, you know, from the dawn of the mom internet to the present and in terms of sort of advertising money being, and this is very reductive, obviously it's sort of explained more deeply in the chapter, but basically once advertising money came into the field, that was just the end for sort of any kind of authentic, real expression of ambivalence what it's like to be a mom, different kinds of viewpoints. And then what advertisers want is very uncontroversial, usually white, blonde, thin Christian moms, because that's what sells products or what they think sells products. I actually think that they're wrong because there's lots of different moms out there and there are different kinds of things that, you know, different kinds of aspirations that people may have, but that's the sort of path of least resistance for advertisers and marketers and only ever showing, you know, the beautiful and the, you know, perfectly laid out children with their beautiful clothes and your beautiful backdrop and your beautiful, you know, marble kitchen counters, you know, the whole thing. And while, The whole time, obviously, there have been so many different depictions of motherhood on the internet. What we're talking about is who gets rewarded financially and who the algorithms are spending more time promoting because those two things are sort of in concert. So, you know, that's the very truncated version of the history of the mom internet. But now it's just... I think we're, I would say, and I I wonder what Catherine would say about this. I kind of do feel we're at the dawn of a new era only because TikTok is so, is becoming so huge and a little bit disruptive. However, I think the folks who are still making a lot of money as momfluencers fit a very narrow view of what motherhood can look like.
1: I agree a hundred percent. First of all, I love the
2: sigh that you gave. That it was like a, <laughs> all right. Let me mentally prepare for this co- comment. Well, but I also <laughs> want to say, like, absolutely no shade to anyone who is making money. Right, right, this. right. Like, yeah. I let's preface that. Yeah, hate the game, not the player. Is always yes. sort of like, I a lot. You know, and I, I feel that's an important point to make because I think especially if you are in a more conservative culture and it's you're discouraged from having a life outside your family promote it, like putting out content on the internet is like one socially acceptable way to be in a conversation about motherhood and to get some sort of recognition for your photography or your writing and and I have no, you know, I totally understand that. That makes sense. And and I have no problem with it. I think it's just, you know, when it's the only narrative of motherhood that we get that it becomes a problem.
1: Yeah. Do you think it's a problem when it just seems strictly performative?
2: <sighs> I mean, aren't we all performing constantly yes. in our lives? Like, you know, yes. I don't know. <laughs> That's such a an impossible question to answer. I think, I can say in my own life, if I'm spending a lot of time on social media, posting or being on social media, that never makes me feel good. That never makes me feel like I'm present with my family or even with my own, you know, with myself. So again, it's always about those boundaries. But you know, I mean, I think that listening to that, there's been a lot of, like I said before, it's like, there are as many narratives as there are moms and there's as many mom narratives as there are mom So, I mean, you'll hear like, no, no Willis Aronowitz has that great L profile of Hey, Natalie Jean, Natalie Holbrook, who obviously feels like pretending to, she pretended to be something that she wasn't and that she ultimately found that very painful. And I think that's a really important and, fascinating narrative. And like, that's a great article. And I think it's great that she sort of was able to be honest about that. But for every Natalie Jean, there's probably someone who's like, no, I love doing this. It's great. I find it very rewarding. So at least on
1: paper, because really what they're not showing is
2: like the intense burnout that one gets from being a content creator. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, it's a constant hustle. I mean, I've interviewed lots of content creators. And if you're if you're making a living at it, it's more than a full-time job. Like it's a 60 hour a week job if you're making a lot of money at it. And usually they don't, aren't making quite enough money to hire someone to help them with it. So, you know, again, it's, is it, it, I, I just don't like making this hierarchy of making one kind of work better or worse than any other kind of work. And so it's what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the current state that we are in now, at least from a social media perspective. And and trust me, I understand because there's nobody that is more self-aware than I am with this sort of thing. It's, it's all very meta, you know, and that's why. So I, I had the opportunity to meet Caitlin at a motherhood conference out in Los Angeles this past April. And, you know, when you go to those sort of conferences, everyone's wearing lanyards with their name and and their companies. And I've been following her newsletter for a long time, months, years. I don't even know. This is before she sold it to New York Magazine. And I saw her name on the lanyard. And I was like, I ran to her. I was like, Oh, cat. And she's like yes like totally like who is this crazy person that just ran up to me I was like I am such a huge fan of your work I've been following you for a really long time I love your insights I love all of like the commentary that you bring to this like I completely understand what you're doing and where you're going with all of this kind of stuff and so she was like you want to chat and I was like absolutely and so she and I sat and we spoke for a very long time on the record, off the record, combination of both. We had some, some of my other content creator friends involved in the conversation too. And it was, it was so nice to be able to chat with someone on the outside who's also sort of a, on the inside to then really like, you know, lay it all out on the table in that way. So I'm a Absolutely. huge fan of her. So Catherine, if you're listening, I, you know, I still love you.
2: Yes, you're the best. She is the
1: best. I should have both of you back, and we should just like really blow up social media commentary and just blow it out of the water. But that's a different topic altogether. We'll talk for hours about it. I could. I mean, you know, I mentioned before about Lex Freeman podcast, four hour podcast. That would be a, the four hour
2: podcast. I mean, I find it like even from a sort of not even a non judgmental, purely entertainment standpoint, like. I find. I think even from an academic standpoint, you know,
1: Catherine comes at it from an academic standpoint, I would come at it or I come at it from the same perspective. And that's why I'm like, let's break this down. Let's really talk about this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we're here for now. This is where we're at, right? We talked a little bit about the history of American motherhood. We talked a little bit about the digital village. How can we make meaningful change going forward?
2: So it has to happen on multiple levels, right? Obviously, there is a lot that as individuals we can't do. I talk about policy fixes in the book. They are the obvious ones. You know, paid leave, which I think will happen. I I actually think that in my lifetime, I am the most confident about paid leave because even from when I started writing the book to the final edit, I think three more states passed paid leave laws. So I'm very... I'm pretty confident we will get national paid leave in my lifetime. So check up, check back with me when I'm 80 and we'll see if that happens. This is going to be one of those things where it's like, yeah, hit me up. What I'm less confident about is childcare because there is a very powerful minority of folks in the United States who believe that women should be at home taking care of small children. And that there's kind of no, if that is your very firm belief, that is very hard to shift. It is, again, a minority. And so I I think, again, we can move forward on that. But it is, there's no getting around the fact that it is expensive, and it should be, to provide high quality childcare, especially for little, very little kids under two. And that should be expensive because It is a highly skilled and difficult job. And the folks who perform that job should be making a lot more money than they are. And so there's no, you know, when you're sort of doing that horse trading of government work, there's no getting around the fact that that's going to be really expensive. And I would love to see a shift in our societal values (laughs) that would convince more people that that is an expenditure worth making in our next generation, am I confident that that's going to happen in the near term? I am not because I live in reality. (laughs) So that's the policy part. And obviously, you know, the individual can vote for, you know, lobby, vote, you know, again, do that sort of volunteer, volunteer to help in various ways. So that's the sort of the policy part. There's the cultural part, which I honestly think might even be harder to shift in some ways than the policy part because it's so baked in to so many things. So in the book, I talk about a couple who really tried hard to be extremely egalitarian and the husband was all in Is a heterosexual couple. So obviously there's, you know, queer couples have their own dynamics, but this is a frequent problem in heterosexual couples where the mother, the female identified person, does more labor, domestic labor, does more childcare, does more household work. Again, study after study proves this. Every time I write about this, I get letters from dads who are like, but I do more in my house. And I'm like, I'm not talking about you. Like Like, this is not about you as an individual. We are now talking about societal society wide. Anyway, so in the book, I interviewed a woman who she and her husband really split everything equally, like he was all in, there was no question about it. And they had to spend a lot of time training people outside their household because when the dentist office would call, they would always call the mom. And every time she would say, you have my husband's number on file. Please make a note that he is the one who handles these things. And they would say, but don't you know his schedule? And she was like, no, I don't know his schedule. Why would I know his work schedule? Like, that's an insane thing to expect. So there is so even if in your sort of household unit, you are working as hard as you can to make things, you know, as equal as what in, in whatever That means you and the ways that that works for you. There's so much, the systems around you are still so predicated on the mother being the primary caretaker. So that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of concerted effort on a lot of different levels. And then there's sort of the interpersonal way of changing. And I talked a bit about that at the beginning of our chat, which is just like, just not judging, just being there for the people in our community and our lives and being supportive of them, both emotionally, but also practically. So, you know, if your friend is really struggling, offer to babysit for them, take their kids. Like the smallest thing, I will never forget a friend of mine who we didn't even know each other super well. I would say at this point, we were good acquaintances. When my second daughter was born, She just brought over a rotisserie chicken and sides because she was like, Oh, you know, I figured you would want to break from cooking tonight. This was not asked for, this was just a kindness. And I know that sounds hokey, but like things like that matter tremendously. And so that's just day to day humanity and having that for each other. And, sitting in discomfort sometimes. The story I tell in my book about that is like, I ran into a friend who was pregnant with a with a new child in the pandemic, and she was feeling really ambivalent about it. And my first reaction to her ambivalence was to be like, No, it's gonna, it's gonna be so great. You're gonna be so happy when the baby gets here. And it's like, that what I, you know, what I wish I had done in that moment was just been like, I hear that you know, listened and accepted that that's how she was feeling in that moment and not allowed my sort of discomfort with that ambivalence to, to color that discussion. So it's, again, it's like, there's so many different levels of, of work to be done. And honestly, I find that, again, you could find that depressing, or you could find that really inspiring, because there's so many, and that's sort of the note that I try to end the book on is I talked to a bunch of moms who who have been inspired by the past couple of years to make serious changes in their communities and do that work. And so I find that inspiring kind of every day And and trying to be more helpful to the people in my life always makes me feel better about the world. So yeah, that's that's all we got to do. Just change That's everything it. on
1: every level. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no stress, no pressure. But I, I do. I think I find that incredibly uplifting. I find your work very inspiring on so many levels. Jessica Gross, where can we find you online?
2: Well, you can find me at the, at the New York Times website. You can find me at Jess Gross, J E S S G R O S E. Spell my last name is spelled a little unusually. That's Twitter and at Jess Gross writes on Instagram. Somebody already got at Jess Gross on Instagram before I could get it, which was a bummer for me.
1: Ah, (laughs) So annoying. So annoying. Everybody go check out Jess. Check out her new book. It is incredible. I'm holding a copy. You can't see it because it's audio only, but it's screaming on the inside, the unsustainability of American motherhood. Jess, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Modern Mom Probs. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive in today's problem with me, your host, Tara Clark. Join me next time when I'll be interviewing another great guest and tackling another Modern Mom problem. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and a rating. As always, you can head over to Modern Mom Probs on Instagram and give me a follow Or check out my book, Modern Mom Probs, A Survival Guide for 21st Century Mothers, available online wherever books are sold. Well, that's it for today. See you next time, folks.